Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, I'll test my knowledge of artificial intelligence by taking a quiz that we set for our AI in Medical Physics Week. But first, I chat with a scientist whose research focuses on how climate change is affecting natural and human systems. I'm joined down the line by Noah Diffenbaugh, who leads the Climate and Earth System Dynamics Group at Stanford University in California. He's also editor-in-chief of the new journal, Environmental Research Climate. The journal has been launched by the Institute of Physics Publishing, which also publishes Physics World. Hi, Noah. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Noah, global warming is changing climate and weather in different ways in different places. Can you give some examples of these changes and explain how they're being driven by rising levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's been known for a long time that the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere uh, affects the energy balance of of planet Earth and not just planet Earth, but of other planets as well. So, you know, the the earliest uh, calculations of, of how the global energy balance and the global temperature should respond to rising greenhouse gas concentrations you know, go back to the 1800s. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, something that's been formally researched and understood for a very long time now. Uh, and, you know, what's been clear through the decades is is not only that global warming is happening uh you know that's an observed fact uh but also that you know the 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 pattern of warming across the globe in the atmosphere and in the oceans both you know the, the spatial pattern horizontally as well as the pattern uh of warming vertically in in both the ocean and the atmosphere as well as all you know a large suite of other climate changes, that these just aren't explainable uh, by any other hypothesis than uh, you, you know, like, like variations in the, in the solar output or cosmic rays or the, the internal variability of the climate system or volcanoes, right? That, that there's just a huge mountain of evidence now that, uh, you know, not, not just from the global temperature time series, but from a lot of sophisticated analysis of, of uh, the spatial and temporal patterns of the global climate, you know, that, that this is, you know, pro- humans are the, are the primary driver of uh, that global warming. So that's established, uh, you know, very well established. Um, and increasingly in, you know, in recent years, uh, there's been both scientific and public and, and policy interest in uh, the ways in which global warming is affecting the climate in different places around the world, and in particular, uh, extreme events. And, and you know, extremes are not the only way in which the climate affects people and ecosystems, uh, but they are a really important way uh, you know, as, uh, you know, the, the, in terms of um, where we really feel the climate system, it's often extreme events. And so, as uh, it's become clear, both uh, experientially as well as in the documented uh, you know, uh, observations of the climate system, you know, extreme events are becoming more frequent. 
uh, the, the most extreme events in many cases are becoming more severe, right? So we're getting unprecedented events, events that are more extreme than anything that's come in the historical experience. Uh, and so that, uh, you know, that, that's really spurred uh, an explosion of research into uh, what's often called extreme event attribution, uh, but really, you know, posing and testing hypotheses about how the global warming that's already happened uh, is likely to influence extreme events. So a lot of my research in the last decade has been focused on that, both, uh, you know, how heat waves and, and floods and droughts, um, those kinds of extremes, uh, you know, how they have changed historically, uh, the role of global warming, and in, in recent years, uh, you know, what the, what the impacts associated with that are. So, for example, the, the financial costs, can we attribute uh, what fraction of the financial cost of, of extreme events uh, is, is attributable to, to global warming versus, um, you know, all the other influences on, on, on not just the event, but on the, on the cost of the event. And and so you look at, um, at at how these changes in climate and weather are affecting or will affect natural and human systems. What what systems are most vulnerable to climate change, and and why? Well, you know, we now you know have evidence from you know literally <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of researchers and thousands of papers that global warming is already impacting people and ecosystems all around the world. Um, on land, in the oceans, uh, from the equator to the poles, from the coast to the tops of mountains, uh, the interior of continents, um, you know, th there are, uh, there, there isn't anywhere, uh, you know, that, that, um, people and ecosystems aren't already, uh, being impacted, um, in many cases, you know, the signal is much stronger uh, than in others. Uh, and, you know, some of my work in recent years has been on you know, trying to disentangle that signal and noise. And, and you know, interestingly, um, you know, in the tropics uh, where the, the amount of warming has been smaller in terms of the absolute magnitude, as a fraction of the of the, uh, the variability, it's actually been much stronger. So even where we find the smallest magnitude warming, actually in a relative sense, relative to the range of variability that people and ecosystems are, are accustomed to, even there, we actually see very large changes, uh, including in some areas of the world, uh, particularly in the low latitudes where there appears to already be an emergence of, um, you know, really severe heat conditions where, where in some areas even, you know, approaching even where the, you know, the coolest year or the coolest hot season is, is even hotter than what used to be the, the record setting season. So, um, you know, even, and that's just one example, right? So, um, you know, we're really, we're, we're at the point now where we have very clear evidence that, um, not only that global warming is happening and that it's affecting the climate, uh, but those but those changes in climate at the local and regional scales are already having impacts. Uh, it's you know it, it's clear that we're not adapted to to the climate change that's already happened. 
And and you mentioned, uh, I suppose, unexpected effects that that have been seen in in the tropics. Are are, are certain regions of the world um, at more risk than others from uh, from climate change, global warming? Well, the risk is really a combination of uh, you know the physical hazard, right? So you know, in our studies of extremes, you know, the, the heat wave, the wildfire, the the extreme precipitation, the storm surge flooding, uh, you know, that, that those are all physical hazards. Uh, so we know that global warming is changing the, the probability of those hazards in, in many parts of the world. Um, but then those hazards interact with exposure and vulnerability, right? So, you know, what is in harm's way um, and, you know, p- people, ecosystems, infrastructure uh, and then what's the vulnerability of of uh, what's in harm's way and so um, you know we have very clear evidence that it's not just the hazard um, it's it's also uh, those other dimensions that really influence the risk and the good news is that we have opportunities to manage those risks in in each of those dimensions uh, but it also means that uh, you know we're we, we can expect continued, intensification of those risks, uh, even in a world in which, say, the, you know, the Paris Agreement goals are met and, and global warming is held to 1.5 or 2 degrees, even if that's successful, you know, we're, given that we're not adapted to the 1.1 degrees of warming that's already happened, we can, uh, we can expect continued intensification of those risks, but with opportunities to manage those risks. And and what would some of those risks be? I mean, I, I would imagine um, sea level rise is is a risk that that would pose um, uh, well great hardship on people. Um, you know, both in terms of where they live and also agriculture. And I suppose agriculture as well is that a a, a, a system, a human system that that's at great risk from climate change. Yeah. So there's lots of examples. Uh, you know, really the. You know, the areas where we see the clearest emergence already is what, you know, scientists call the thermodynamic responses. So if you just think about, you know, really what the the increasing greenhouse gas concentrations are doing is they're adding heat to the climate system. So, you know, when we say thermodynamic changes, really just, you know, the changes associated with the heat. So so sea level rise is one, uh, both from the thermal expansion of the ocean and from now the contribution of, of new water into the ocean from uh, melting land ice. So that's certainly thermodynamic um, response. And we already have evidence that, you know, for example, uh, the storm surge uh, that happened during Superstorm Sandy that caused so much damage in, in, in New York and New Jersey uh, you know, that that level of storm surge was was made, you know, 20 percent more severe uh, by the sea level rise that's already happened. And the other side of that coin is, you know, it was made about three times as likely as a result of the of the sea level rise that's already happening. So, yes, we're already experiencing increases risk, increased risk from sea level rise. The other thermodynamic um, changes that are, you know, that are already really clear, you know, the first and foremost is heat. Um, and, and, you know, one of the areas where we've had, you know, real, real increase in understanding in the last, uh, one to two decades is in agriculture and, you know, very clear evidence of nonlinear impacts on agriculture, uh, from severe heat. And so those are, those are clearly already occurring. And, and, and in fact, the costs, we now know the costs are, are, uh, increasing as well. So, you know, some research from, from my research group, um, 
uh, in collaboration with Marshall Burke, who's a, an economist here at Stanford. Uh, we had a, a paper in Environmental Research Letters uh, last year that uh, you know showed that uh, you know around twenty percent of the costs of the U.S. crop insurance program, so the, the indemnities paid out by taxpayers in the, in those crop insurance programs, uh, you know, about twenty percent has been in the last three decades has been contributed by uh, long-term warming. Uh, so you know that's. You know, on the order of billion billion dollars a year, and with with the biggest costs concentrated in the most extreme events, um, our that same group of authors had a, a related paper on uh, flood damages in in the U.S. Um, we found about a third of the flood damages in the U.S. over that similar period um, have have been contributed by changes in precipitation, particularly extreme precipitation um, that are both responsible for a large fraction of the of the damages and are most sensitive uh, or we have the highest signal to noise ratio um, to be technical uh, in terms of the the effect of global warming on precipitation where we see the clearest impact is on the the most intense events uh, so that's two examples where uh, these are thermodynamic you know mostly thermodynamic influences where um, just adding heat to the climate system is um, increasing the frequency and intensity of extremes and that's already costing us in these these uh these dimensions where we're where we're sensitive to the climate system and there's a lot of other examples um you know we see that the odds that co-occurring uh extreme conditions uh have increased so we looked at breadbasket regions uh around the world and we find that uh the odds that that different regions around the world experience both extreme heat and low precipitation simultaneously in the same year has has increased dramatically uh china and india for example so you know that's a very large fraction of the total global population between those two countries very um important agricultural regions and you know the odds that they both of those regions experience low precipitation and severe temperature in the in the same year have gone from essentially negligible in the mid 20th century to now on the order of 15 percent Right. So that's that's a huge change in the in the risk globally because of the interconnectedness of um, of supply chains of the agricultural uh, you know food system um, agricultural products. Uh, so that's an example. Uh, similarly for wildfire, um, you know where the co-occurring conditions really really play a big role. Having um, you know pre- precipitation deficits and high temperature and high winds uh, all coinciding and how it overlaps with with our system for for responding to fires for for preventing fires responding when they happen uh, we found that you know in California for example the frequency of extreme wildfire weather days has more than doubled in the last four decades um, and that that's likely to further increase uh, with global warming particularly uh, co-occurring conditions in different parts of the region. Uh, so, you know, there, there are lots and lots of examples uh, of, of impacts that are already emerging. And, you know, in particular, you know, they're not, they're not all associated with, with extreme events, but, uh, you know, it, it's a, extreme events are a, are a key pathway through which global warming is already impacting us. So, so some sig- significant changes that we're already having to deal with. And, and can we mitigate some of the worst effects of climate change on natural and human systems? Yeah, so I often hear that phrase, uh, to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And in some sense, it's really a tautology. 
Um, can we can we avoid the worst effects? Yes. The 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 more climate change that happens, the greater the effects. Uh, so any uh, avoidance of <laughs> of any uh, you know any increment of further uh, global warming and climate change is going to help to avoid the worst effects. The effects will be worse at two degrees than they have been at one degree. They'll be worse at three than they have been at two. They'll certainly be worse worse at four. That, uh, that then they will be at three. So uh, the the short answer is yes. Of course, we can we can mitigate the worst effects because uh, any mitigation will will uh, reduce the amount of global warming and climate change that we uh, eventually experience. Now, the longer answer is that you know the, we really face globally uh, you know at least three interlocking grand challenges when it comes to climate change. Uh, one is that we don't provide enough energy globally to ensure uh, you know, human well-being for all people on planet Earth. Uh, and depending on you know, what assumptions one makes and how one does the calculation and whether one takes a sort of a futurist scenario view or an ethical view, uh, you'll get some different estimates of, of how much energy we need to supply, but it's, you know, on the order of two to three times as much energy as we're supplying now and much more equitably, right? Not just increasing the total exajoules, but, uh, you know, solving the problem of, you know, on the order of a billion people not even having access to electricity at all, let alone mm-hmm. the energy deficits. So that's a grand challenge all by itself, right? I mean, we're not, we're not, we have a, we have an 80% fossil fuel energy system, and we're not supplying enough energy as it is. Um, Secondly, to stabilize the climate system at any level, uh, including the Paris, uh, (laughs) the Paris Agreement level, um, you know, that's going to require reaching net zero emissions. I mean, that's just a, 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 a fundamental property of the physics of planet Earth. So, uh, you know, supplying 600 exajoules a year like we do now, but with net zero emissions, that requires, you know, removing, you know, we've got 80, 80% fossil fuel base that's emitting to the, to the atmosphere. Uh, that's a grand challenge all by itself, reaching net zero at the current level of, of energy supply and the current limited level of equity would be a grand challenge. Uh, reaching net zero while also expanding the amount of energy by a factor of two or three and uh, greatly expanding access that's an even larger grand challenge. Uh, so now things are sounding, uh, you know, reaching net zero by 2050 sounding, sounding um, non-trivial. And as I've, as I've uh, already uh, discussed, we're not adapted to the climate change that's already happened. And it will take time to reach net zero, even if, even if we do it on the Paris timeline. So even the extremely ambitious goal of 1.5 degrees is still more global warming and climate change than we've already had. So we are going to have to adapt to further climate change no matter what. Uh, we, we've demonstrated we're not effective at adapting. That's, that's an empirical fact. Uh, and, and, you know, that because of, you know, the, the, you know, the fundamental relationships between climate extremes and, and, and climate impacts, uh, the impacts will, will continue to accelerate uh, even, even at 1.5 or 2 degrees. So uh, those are three big challenges. Uh, we already know that climate change is, is making them harder, right? Uh, we, you know, we, we, uh, in other work I've done with Marshall Burke, we've shown that 
uh, global warming has uh, exacerbated economic inequality globally, uh, anywhere from 25 to 40 percent. Right? The, the difference between the richest countries and poorest countries on Earth in terms of per capita GDP is anywhere from 25 to 40 percent larger now than it would have been without global warming. Uh, the, those countries that have contributed the least uh, in terms of cumulative emissions have been you know, had their per capita GDP dragged down the most, you know, on the order of you know, 30% in countries like India and Nigeria, 25% in Brazil. So, you know, we're not only are those countries not benefiting from energy access, they're also, uh, you know, as a secondary impact, they're having their, their economic growth dragged down by the heat that, uh, <laughs> that's being increased uh, by the global emissions. So, you know, we're, we're, we're losing ground, you know, in terms of the, the Paris goals, uh, you know, certainly, uh, there's been progress since Paris, but uh, in terms of the rate of global warming, the rate of climate change, the impacts on on people and ecosystems, uh, the gap between what's happening and what we're adapted to is is growing. And and last question: um, the new journal that you're involved with, um, Environmental Research Climate, how, how does it fit in um, in terms of uh, academic research on, on climate change? What, what sort of topics um, and, and subjects are, are being covered in the journal? Well, I think the, the journal is, is really exciting. Um, you know, it, it's, its mission is focused on the causes, consequences, and solutions of uh, climate variability and change. And there are lots of journals in the world. There are lots of journals uh, publishing uh, in various aspects of, of causes, consequences, and solutions. And you look at the IPCC reports that synthesize these thousands of papers, and they're just you know papers coming from, from hundreds of journals. Uh, and there's not really a journal um, you know, focused squarely uh, across that, that uh, you know, full scope of causes, consequences, and solutions. So the goal is is to provide a unique uh, venue where uh, you know the full community that's working on on causes, consequences, and solutions of of climate variability and change has one publishing venue that's fully open access. Uh, you know that that's that's focused squarely on that on that full scope. Um, and and I, I you know it, it's important that those other you know all the other journals keep publishing climate research. It's important that the IPCC keeps synthesizing uh, all the research on on causes, consequences, and solutions. Uh, but uh, you know the the climate research community is at a you know at, at a unique stage where um, you know it's been lots and lots of disciplines contributing. Um, as I as I've said, this goes back you know many decades uh, into the into the uh, into the you know the 19th century, not to mention that humans have been observing the climate system for millennia, and um, you know I think this is this is a, we're at a time where where the research community is really responding to uh, a rapidly changing world and and really rapidly increasing demands from from the public and and from decision makers to understand uh, what's happening and and to, to figure out solutions. So I think you know it, it's it's very well timed uh, this new journal and and uh, you know we won't we won't uh, uh, be the only publishing venue for these important issues by any means, but I think we you know we, we have an opportunity to really uh, provide a unique venue for the climate research community and, and hopefully for the public. Well, that's great. I hope things go well with the, with the new journal and, and with your research as, as well. Th thanks a lot, Noah, for being on the podcast. Thanks so much. It's uh, been my pleasure. 
The journal Environmental Research Climate has just launched this week, and you can find it on the IOP Science website. All papers are currently free to read, and I'll put a link to the journal in the podcast notes. Last week's podcast was hosted by my colleague Tammy Freeman, and it was part of Physics World's AI in Medical Physics Week. This featured a series of scientific presentations, as well as a bumper crop of articles describing how artificial intelligence is revolutionizing medical physics. Tammy also published a quiz last week about AI and medical physics, and she's back to put those questions to me and to reveal the answers. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Hamish. Now, I should say, uh, before we start the quiz, that I, I don't know the answers to the questions. That'll probably be obvious very soon. And I promise I haven't consulted Google or Wikipedia. So let's see how I do with my limited knowledge of both AI and medical physics. Okay, great. So these are uh, multiple choice quiz questions. So I'm going to read out each question and I'm going to give you four possible answers to choose from. So, number one, inspired by Alan Turing's early work in AI, in what year did computer scientist Joseph Weizenbaum develop ELISA, the world's first chatbot? Was it 1966, 76, 86, or 96? Okay, well, with this one, I think, I think I'm going to go with the earliest year, because uh, I, I think this is one of those things where, that it's actually surprising how long a chatbot has been around. So I'm going to go with 1966, Tammy. Is that correct? Excellent. Well done. That's a good start. Yes, it was indeed 1966. So um, as you know, chatbot is something that's it's software that stimulates human conversations. And um, have you ever heard of the Eliza effect? Uh, no, no, I can't say I have. What's that? Yeah, so this is named after this first chatbot. And basically, it's just sort of the, the tendency of humans to assume that computer behavior is analogous to human behavior. And interestingly, I saw um, earlier this month an engineer at a senior software engineer at Google has been placed on leave because he was um, working with the company's Lambda chatbot and he actually has become convinced that the chatbot's become sentient. It's, so this is a, 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 you know, a really recent example of this ELISA effect. Ah, that's really interesting. And I suppose the ELISA effect, d does that sort of work against the Turing test? Because the, the, it isn't the Turing test that um, you, you've created artificial intelligence or some sort of artificial sentience if a human is fooled into thinking that a computer is actually a human. And maybe the, does the ELISA effect say that maybe we're, we're too easily fooled? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting concept when, you know, you develop these chatbots and just sort of see what happens and how humans react to them and things. So I'm off to a great start. Let, let's you see how indeed. I do with question number two. Okay, question two. Developed in the early 70s at Stanford University, mycin was one of the most significant early uses of AI in medicine. So what did this program do? Did it map the human body, study neural networks in the brain, 
diagnose bacterial infection and recommend treatment or predict disease progression. Okay, um, so I, I think I'm going to go on a slightly educated guess, <laughs> although we'll find out how educated it is. <laughs> to me, mycin sounds um, a bit like an antibiotic. So I'm going to say that it's C, diagnose bacterial infection and recommend treatment. Very good. Excellent. Yes, it was indeed. So basically it used AI to identify the bacteria that were causing infections and to recommend antibiotics um, with a sort of the dose adjusted for the specific patient. According to research at Stanford Medical School, mycin was actually, it's um, had an acceptability rating of 65%, which was comparable to that of um, faculty members. So it, it, it worked sort of, you know, as well as human people in diagnosis, although according to Wikipedia, it was never actually used in practice. Uh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I, I wonder why not. I don't know. Maybe they just didn't, you know, if it was the early 70s, maybe they just didn't trust it to be, you know, to rely on it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I suppose back then, you know, yeah. you wouldn't have a computer in every doctor's office, would you? So <laughs> if it was just as good as a doctor, you, you might as well just stick to the, uh, to, to the real life person. Absolutely. Okay, great. Question number three, then. Sundar Pichai, CEO of Alphabet and Google, claimed that AI will have a bigger impact on humanity than what? Electricity, the internet, fire, or all of the above? Okay, so I'm pretty sure that, that, that they said fire. So I'm gonna go with C, fire, but I suppose it is possible that um, they also said electricity and the internet, but let, 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 let's go with the big one. Let's go with fire. Okay, well, yes, he did say fire, but yes, actually it was all of these. Um, he said it was have a bigger impact than electricity, the internet and fire. And that was um, an interview last year with the BBC. Okay, well, I'll, 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 have, to, I'll have to concede on that one then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so t t two out of three so far. Yeah. Okay, question number four. What did Marie Curie attempt to do with her gold Nobel Prize medals during the outbreak of the First World War? Give them away to her daughters, donate them to the war effort, give them back to the chair of the Nobel Committee, or give them to one of her assistants? Ah, uh, okay. Um, oh, this is a tough one. I have to say that I'm not really up on the on the politics of the First World War, so I don't know. I don't know what side France, Poland, and Sweden were on during the war. So I don't know if there's a sort of political aspect to this. Um, and I suppose, oh, I don't know. This is a tough one. I'm, I'm going between donate them to the war effort because, you know, that sounds like a great thing to do or give them back to the chair of the Nobel Committee. Maybe that's in protest because I'm, guess, I'm guessing, you know, lots of explosives. Well, lots of explosives would have been used in the war and maybe she was protesting against that. Um, so, I, okay, I'll, I'll go for C. Give them back to the chair of the Nobel Committee. Oh, unfortunately not. It was the other one. Donate the, um, the medals to the war effort. 
Uh, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, apparently, the French National Bank refused to accept them, um, but she did use her Nobel Prize money to buy some war bonds. So she was trying to she was trying to help out there. What's interesting is um, what she actually did was during World War One, Marie Curie developed mobile radiography units. So sort of for use near the front lines to help the battlefield surgeons, you know, wow. look at soldiers. Yeah, it's really interesting. Apparently, she um, helped install 20 of these mobile radiological vehicles and, and various radiology units. So she did help out a great deal, even if they wouldn't take her medals. OK, question number five. The London-based firm DeepMind recently taught its AI program to master various games without being told the rules. But which game hasn't the program played yet? Chess, Shogi, Go, or Tetris? Ah, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I have to admit, I'm only I'm only familiar with chess and Tetris. I don't really know much about Shogi and Go. No. Um, uh, actually, I think I'm going to go for chess for two reasons. One is because that seems to be the, the game that computers are always taught to play. So maybe this is the exception in this case. And then possibly maybe because chess has lots of rules, maybe more rules than the other games. I'm just guessing that. Maybe it's more <laughs> difficult. Um, to use AI. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for chess and I'm expecting it to be wrong. Oh, unfortunately that one is wrong as well. Um, so it hasn't played Tetris is the one. Um, so back in 2016, um, the DeepMind program AlphaGo, it defeated the current world champion at the game of Go. And then more recently it was taught to play um, chess, Shogi and Atari, apparently without being told the rules but not Tetris, but I'm sure it could if they'd tried that. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah. So that's, so we're up to five questions. So I, I think I got off to a good start, Tammy, but I seem to be flagging at the moment. Okay. Okay. We'll see how you do with this next one. So what did a neural network trained to detect malignant skin lesions in biopsy images? What did it mistakenly use for diagnosis? Artifacts in the image? The presence of a ruler, the color of the slide, or the size of the lesion. Okay, I think I think I know the answer to this one, and I think it's the presence of a ruler, and I think that possibly is that because it was more likely to have a a, a ruler beside a malignant lesion than a non-malignant lesion, and so that confused the system. So is it B, the presence of a ruler? Correct. It is indeed. Yes. Um, and I do think we've possibly chatted about this on the podcast before. So basically, when dermatologists are looking at a lesion, um, if they think it's a tumour, they'll get a ruler out to measure its size, but only for lesions that are suspicious. So basically, in the biopsy images, if an image had a ruler in, it was more likely to be a tumour and the algorithm was more likely to call it malignant. And yes, then it started just picking anything with a ruler, thinking it was cancerous. Prime example of how you have to be careful how you train your AI systems, especially for diagnostics and things. That's right. Yeah, because I suppose the system is, in a way, it's it's sort of very clever, and it will look it'll look for things that maybe you've you never thought of, um, yeah. and, and sort of latch onto those, which I suppose is what you want it to do. 
um, <laughs> except if it's, um, you know, identifying rulers. Yes. <laughs> okay, so question seven. What year did Sir Godfrey Hounsfeld invent the first CT scanner? 65, 67, 71, or 73? Uh, okay, so should I stick to my rule of picking the first date? Because um, these things are often invented uh, earlier than you think. Um, I don't know. I don't think I'll press my luck on that one. <laughs> this, to me, this sounds like a 70s thing. So maybe I'll go for the first date in the 70s, C, 1971. Oh, actually, it was B, 1967, but uh, they're all quite close. So, yeah, he invented the first CT scanner at EMI Central Research Laboratories. And um, interestingly, it was rumoured that it was actually um, sales of records by the Beatles in the 1960s that helped fund the development of this scanner. That's not definite. That has apparently been disputed, but I think it's a nice story if it was true. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. And and can you can you remind me, Tammy, what how how a CT scanner works? CT, it's basically it's an X-ray scanner, but instead of just taking like a single film, it takes a series of slices, Im images in slices, and then it can sort of build up a, a 3D image of a part of the body. And it's still oh. it's used, you know, in hospitals all the time nowadays. It's, yeah, X-ray yeah. imaging. Basically. Yeah, yeah I, I had one actually done recently because I, I, uh, I lost one of my teeth mm. and um, I'm getting a new one. So when I went to the dentist, um, they did a, a, like a 3D scan of my mouth, I'm guessing, to work out how to, how to fit the new teeth in. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and maybe funded by records from the Beatles, but maybe not. <laughs> oh, that would be great. <laughs> That's a great connection. So it looks like uh, um, I just have one chance to redeem myself because uh, it looks like the final question number eight is coming up. Yep. So last question. In 1967, the US computer scientist Marvin Minsky, who was considered one of the founders of AI, he famously said that the problem of creating artificial intelligence will substantially be solved by when? So the end of the 70s, Within a generation, by 2000, or before the end of the 21st century? Uh, okay. Um, I, I, think I'll go, I think I'll go with the millennial answer, by 2000. Oh, I'm sorry. He said within a generation. Ah, okay. Oh. Well, how, how long is a generation? I suppose it's longer than, uh, than what, 33 years. <laughs> So yes, well, or maybe probably, not. So maybe yeah. maybe I'm close on that. Similar time, I guess. But that's that was his his quote from he published a book called Computation, Finite and Infinite Machines, and that included the quote within a generation. So I mean, it, it sounds it it sounds like um, you know the fact that we've had a a uh, AI and medical physics week that artificial intelligence has been created. Is that, uh, is that safe um, to say? I mean, it sounds like it's being used in a lot of different areas. It, I would definitely say it's being used in a lot of areas. Whether it's been substan substantially solved yet, I think is, is another matter. I think there's probably a lot of work to do yet. You know. And that includes <laughs> teaching DeepMind how to play Tetris. Yeah, and teaching them not to recognize rulers. 
Yeah. Okay, Tammy. Well, I I was really I was really chuffed when I started out and got a few of those <laughs> correct. But so uh, I think unfortunately I've uh, I've crashed and burned towards the end. So what 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 sort of score did I get? Final score was three out of eight. Three out of eight. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have to say, you know, I'm not unhappy with that. Um, I've, uh, it, what, what is it? Is, is multiple choice and, and four questions. So does that mean if I was just guessing, I'd probably get two out of eight <laughs> or something yeah. like that? I'm sure people who actually understand statistics will be, uh, will be shouting at the podcast at the moment. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm happy with that, considering yeah. that uh, my knowledge of AI and medical physics is, uh, is pretty thin. So, and there was quite th- a lot of history in there too, wasn't there? So years are always difficult to pin down, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if you'd like to, to challenge your friends and colleagues to the quiz, you, you can find it on the Physics World website. Just look for AI and medical physics. Test your knowledge in this trivia quiz. And all of last week's scientific presentations are available to view online. Just go to the Medical Physics tab on the website and you'll find them there. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Tammy. Thanks for doing my quiz, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Tammy Freeman and Noah Diffenbaugh for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks with Martina Mikulska at University College London about the antibacterial properties of patterned glass surfaces and how they could be used in medical settings. Andrew also chats with Julian Jones from Imperial College London about bioglass, a material that can heal bones and teeth. Physics World.